I want to start tonight with a true story and uh, may go without saying, but see if you can spot the metaphor. <clears throat> in a large temple in Thailand, there was an enormous clay Buddha. It had survived over 500 years. At one point, however, the monks who tended the temple noticed that the statue had begun to crack and would soon be in need of repair and repainting. After a stretch of particularly hot, dry weather, one of the cracks became so wide that a curious monk took his flashlight and peered inside. What shone back at him was a flash of brilliant gold. Inside this plain old statue, the temple residents discovered one of the largest and most luminous gold images of Buddha ever created in Southeast Asia. It was solid gold. The monks believed that this shining work of art had been covered in plaster and clay to protect it during times of conflict and unrest. Do you get it? <laughs> it's a metaphor, it's a story, oh, that's a true story, but it's a story of, we could say, of the ways we have covered our true nature, our Buddha nature, or our, our awake nature, we've covered with clay. Often during times of conflict or unrest or things that were hard to handle for us. And then the clay starts to crack and we go, oh my goodness. You know? Something about practice is to reveal more of the gold of what we are. And gold here is a metaphor for truth, more of the truth of what we are. The Buddha uses uh, the metaphor of gold a few places. And one of them is a, a metaphor he uses for encouraging us to let go of lesser goals in order to know the gold. <coughs> and the metaphor given is trading. It's like we trade or are invited to trade candy for gold. Trade sweeties for gold. Trade the things that might be sweet at first taste that we believe if I could have a few more of these or, you know, that would do it for me. Seeking after experience. And he says, he says, practice. One of the ways, let go, come on retreat. You're letting go of a lot of the candy coming here. Whatever is your version of candy. Eye candy. Sights, more beautiful sights, more beautiful things to look at, more, more sunsets. Or whether it's the music. And again, the, the, the Buddha isn't down on these things. He's talking about a trade in order to know something that's more fulfilling. Right? He wasn't against beautiful sights. But what he's saying is the way we um, relate to those beautiful things, to the candy is a bit out of balance, it's out of kilter. We are expecting those things to give me the fulfillment that they cannot. The most beautiful sight, it's beautiful. And if we're present, actually, we can really enjoy it. Really let it in, really let it touch us. But it is not an abiding home. It will change. The rain will come. The sun will go down. So yes, the world will keep arising. And the Buddha says, if there's something in your heart that seeks for something more enduring, something where you can rest, then come to practice. Check it out for yourself. Come and see for yourself. So trading candy for gold. But normally we want the candy and the gold, <laughs> at least I do. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to just 
you know, and what it, what kind of candy do you have today when you're when you don't have the normal things? Like you haven't got your internet to go on. That's a big source of candy. And I'm not using candy derogatorily. There's lots of good stuff, but it's stuff that's sweet for a moment and can't give us the abiding heart's rest. That's all. And after a while, it doesn't even feel like candy, does it? It's like stuffing with too much candy. Have you ever done that on the internet? <laughs> well, you feel hungover at the end. Like, I only went on to look at the weather mm -hmm. on the BBC website, and then, bing, bing, oh, young boy wrestles crocodile, clink. Oh, mm -hmm. And there before I know, oh, crocodiles, and then I'm, you know, before I know it, I've gone down a track I wasn't even sure I consciously chose. And I'm not fulfilled at the end. I know more things about boys wrestling crocodiles. <laughs> All right. But that deep heart's fulfillment just gets more hungry. Just gets more hungry. And then today, trading the candy for gold before we have even got the gold in our hands. Right? We don't sort of line you up as you come in and say, okay, drop your candy and here's your gold. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, see what it's like to let go of the familiar things that you fill up on. There's nothing wrong with those things. But what happens when you make more space? What happens when you leave your phone aside? At first it can be, yeah, but where's the substitute? Whoa, there's nothing here to hold me. We tend to like things that grab our attention, that give us a sense of like a tether or an anchor to this life. You can see that. Well, it looks like that to me, you know, being old enough to not remember mobile phones. Is that the right way of saying it in English? To be old enough to remember not mobile. <laughs> to be old enough. And seeing, seeing that um, when I go back to my mum's house in South London, and lots of people walking up and down the high street, um, snuggled up, snuggled up to their phones. And we're not, it's not that we're particularly down on phones, somehow we keep talking about phones on this retreat. It's just one example, right? But kind of adhered, almost bonded, bonded to some source of, of what? Some source of, contact, some source of somebody who might love me or tell me something or give me something or who I can help, or, but bonded, bonded. What happens when we let that go? Yes, if the Buddha was around today, I'm sure he'd have a mobile phone. He could pick it back up again, but do the work first. What would it be to be able to be in this world? without being compelled, <coughs> without being compelled by the thoughts that tell us to do this and don't do that, compelled by the feelings that feel like they define our reality. You know, if, I, if I'm afraid, it means there really is danger. Not compelled by what comes in from the outside, so-called outside not compelled to shrink away or jump in, to pause long enough to know where a wise response can come from. So the, this historical Buddha as a normal guy of his era normal in the sense that he had the same struggles, the same existential questions as people do. You know, it's like, what, what is this? What is the fulfillment of this? What is it to be human? What is it that can be most deeply known and realized as a human being? And not normal in the sense that he probably got the best, some of the best candy going at the time. <laughs> You know, the story is of a rich prince, right? 
a good-looking rich prince. He had it. He had it all. He had it made in terms of the worldly situation. A palace for the hot season, a palace for the cool season, a palace for the rainy season. Beautiful food, entertainment, all of that. And a beautiful, loving family. But his heart wasn't at rest. There was that gnawing question of what more is there to see? And this is one of the um, ways he described it. Apparently later on he said, actually I just want to translate. One of the, one of the phrasings here is the phrase um, aging, sickness, death and sorrow. And what he means by that, it's sometimes birth, aging, sickness, death, and sorrow. We can look at that in a couple of ways. One is to experience things that are born, right? A nice experience is born, like a chocolate cake. Right, there it is. Born, the, the language of born you may or may not like. But there's the chocolate cake. And I get excited by the chocolate cake, right? Fair enough. So I go and have a piece of the chocolate cake. I'm I'm born into believing that this chocolate cake will be my fulfillment, right? <coughs> and all of us know intellectually, well, it probably won't be, but something is compelled, and it's lovely, and it's delicious, and no one's looking, so we have another bit, mm -hmm. and another bit. And what he's saying, we're born, and then there is aging, sickness, and death. What that means is we're born into an experience. It's like in its youth for a while, but then it no longer seems to serve that function. It starts to dwindle. The pleasure changes into feeling a bit sick, for example, and then the cake's finished. And it didn't do it. It didn't deliver the final rest that the heart really seeks for. Not because we did something wrong, not because the cake was the wrong cake, but it's not the nature of experience to give us that fulfillment. So he uses this phrase about experience. And he says this to his monks and nuns. He says, Bhikkhus, that's his monks, before my awakening, while I was an unenlightened bodhisattva, I myself was subject to birth and I also sought things that were also subject to birth. Being myself subject to aging, sickness, death, sorrow, I sought for things that were also subject to aging, sickness, death and sorrow. Then I thought, this was his brainwave, then I considered, why should I, being myself subject to birth, why do I seek things that are also subject to birth, aging, sickness, and sorrow? Would it not make more sense that I, who are subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, and sorrow, would seek for that which is not subject to birth, aging, sickness, death, and sorrow? The undefiled supreme security from bondage, namely, in the tradition, Nibbana, so he got a little tired of going round and around and around, picking up something that thought it would do it for me and then feeling like it's let us down. Right? So he said, wouldn't it make more sense to kind of let that go for a bit and see what is possible to realize as a human being that is not subject to birth, aging, sickness, death? the undefiled supreme security from bondage. And this is the invitation of the path. Security from bondage. Security from being compelled. And we want security, don't you? <laughs> Isn't that something that, as little human mammals, we're seeking? On our little mammal nature, seek security. We seek shelter. We seek loved ones. We seek somewhere to rest, somewhere to curl up, 
that's okay. And what he's saying is, yes, sure, and, and, what are we beyond that? What are we as well as this human mammal? What in us is, wants to be ennobled in this lifetime that, fi- that can find a security in the midst of all these changing worldly phenomena, all the pleasure, all the pain, and all the ordinariness, what would it mean to be free in the midst of that? And this is the invitation. It's not for special other beings. It's for human beings who are interested. Where we might have felt the clay cracking or the... or sensed the pure gold of truth. Seen it, open to it in different ways, in the different ways it's showed up in our life. Or those moments, let's put it in, in ordinary terms, where we haven't felt masked by the clay and the mud surrounding us. The masks have come off, the defenses have relaxed, and we're there in a way that is not just not enshrouded, not encapsulated, not um, veiled but has the quality of something real. And that's why gold has this sort of metaphor, but something real. And check it out for yourself, but uh, here's how I see it, and I've, I've uh, heard it and checked it out for myself, that our heart, our heart is like a compass for the real. Real here meaning really itself, not shrouded, not veiled, not encapsulated, but real. The heart is like a compass for that. When we hear it, maybe sometimes in a piece of music, or see it in a piece of art, or feel it in another being, or words that strike us, that strike a chord. It's like something rings, doesn't it? When we say it rings true, it's not because somebody tells us it's true. It's because something in us chimes. We assent, it's like, yeah, something here. Don't know quite what it is yet. Or, but something in me wakes up, something in me lights up. And that seems to be what attracts us. It attracts us in people. I mean, check it out. I I imagine you know that seems to be rather universal. Check it out. And then the mud gets caked on again and the clay come back on. But we come on retreat. You came on retreat. Something brought you here. And I don't mean something, you know, metaphysical. You can have that story if you like. It would be fine. But something of you, in you, brought you here. Some kind of compass of your interest, you might say. Compass of your heart. Search for what's real, what's meaningful, what's fulfilling. How's it going? How's it going today? Check that you're still breathing. I'm actually really curious how it's going. 
Sometimes I ask people to do like a kind of like a little dialometer, clapometer, so so I can have some sense, you know. And of course, it's not one thing. There's probably been many many experiences today, right? Nice ones, difficult ones, ordinary ones. Some you, most you didn't whatever you didn't notice ones, right? But yeah, just give me a a little uh, clapometer if you don't mind, sort of on the. Um, and it can move. You don't have to be absolutely fixed. That's the thing. Yeah, you know, like somebody's somebody's dials like this. Yeah. Yeah. And what's the? Me- how do you measure that? How did you just measure that when you had the question? What did you base it on? Because in a one of the things the Buddha says, I like very much. Sounds like an insult, but I'm sure it's just the translation into English. It says, fools seek for experience. Okay, that's, that's me out then. <laughs> fools seek for experience. The wise seek to understand it. Right? So the fool, the one who hasn't, you know, is tumbling around. That's us also, right? Tumbling around in the world, tumbling around in experience. Keeps seeking for another one, another one, another one. Or, right? Fools, uh, the wise seek to understand it. Fools, in this case, usually seeking for uh, exciting experience, pleasant experience, don't normally seek for horrible experience. So if I was to do the same rating on the pleasant experience uh, clapometer, if we measured it on that, as to whether things were good or not, then we're never going to arrive home, right? Because experience does not stay pleasant. The Buddha got some of the best meditation experience, apparently. His concentration got so refined. His sense of space and infinite space and beyond infinite space was so refined, was so precise, so crisp. And it's beautiful, very beautiful. Those things are available. But even that, he said, something in the heart, it changed. Something in the heart was still seeking that which was beyond refined, beyond gross, beyond pleasure, beyond pain, that was not limited to something in the realm of pleasure and pain. So what measures, what, what do we base the measure on? Is it something that's meaningful to us or something where we got a glimpse of something? Or maybe our meditation got a bit deeper. It's beautiful if it does. That usually inspires us when that happens. But our our measure changes, I think, as we turn to understand experience. Our measure of whether it's good or not isn't about whether it tastes good or not. It's whether that barometer that rings true is we're nearly, we're chiming nearby, something in the heart starts to ring. Seems to me, again, check this out, and maybe some of you, I'm sure some of you know this or have articulated it to yourself, that usually the heart rejoices when he or she comes closer to what's true, even if that truth is difficult or hard to bear. The clay that we enshroud our truths with starts to break and we feel afraid, but something is revealed. We come closer to the truth and the heart breathes out. It's like, oh, thank God for that. So the Buddha in that search, that human search for fulfillment, left the palaces, left his family, and went wandering, as many usually young men of his time did, the ones I think that were wealthy enough to have that privilege in a way, went off wandering in the region, in that region of North India, 
where many people at the time were exploring all kinds of practices. All kinds of far-out practices. <coughs> kind of very odd practices. Lots of meditation practices. And he did that work and he <coughs> excelled in all of that. And still there was something in the heart. And this is where the story says that he um, went to take his seat under the Bodhi tree, the famous tree that he sat under. He had been an extreme ascetic up until that point, starving the body, believing that freedom would be found apart from the body. Right? He starved the body and he was so skinny and unwell. But he changed, he accepted some milk rice and he made the determination to sit Sit there, he said, until my bones run dry, if necessary, I'm going to sit here and discover what's possible for a human being that is not bound into that cycle <clears throat> of pleasure and pain, that is not bound into the cycle of seeking for this, hoping this, hoping it's going to be really good, and then something changes. And he made the determination, sat under the tree, And the story goes that that night is the night of his awakening. And the gesture of the statue behind is where he reaches down with his right hand, he reaches down and touches the earth. And he calls on the earth to bear witness to his right to sit there while he's being assailed by the mind. Has that happened to anyone today? <laughs> right, we make the determination to sit, right? Maybe you're not up for your bones running dry, but whatever, whatever level of determination you have some, right, to be willing to sit there. And as soon as we make a commitment, one of the things we see is that the forces of the mind can arise to try and unseat us. And that same happened for him, right? You know, who do you think you are sitting there thinking you can be free? That arose for him too. And that's where he reached down, touches the earth, calls upon the Mother Earth to bear witness to his right. And the, the story goes that the earth rose up and bore witness. And the, the myth goes that this big, beautiful Naga serpent came up and kind of protected him as he took his seat. So this might sound mythical, mythical, and I think the myth has been woven around it a little bit, but it's an archetypal story, isn't it? It's our story of our search for fulfillment. <coughs> uh, in a way, getting a little bit weary. Yes, of course there's beautiful experience in the world. That is not in question here, but a little bit weary of keeping trying to find home in something that keeps changing. And then we come and make our determination, get assailed by the mind, but something keeps calling us back to our seat. And that will be for you worded in whichever way you word it. What brings you here? So in his awakening, the story goes on, he awoke to understanding suffering, dis-ease, the cause for disease, dis-ease, which he said is clinging, grasping, bonding, sticking to things that can't actually do it for us. Clinging, grasping to experience. He said there's an end to disease and there's a path to the end of disease. And that's what we're practicing. So how's it going? <laughs> Doesn't mean you feel less diseased tonight. Normally on night day 1 some of the disease will show up loud and clear. The disease of the mind. Anybody anybody had any dis-ease in their mind today? How, does your, how did your dis-ease show up? 
right? Sometimes anyone have you can you can nod or wink or raise your hand if you like. Anyone have um, agitation arise at any point today? Hooray! Thank you. Mm-hmm. Right? Anyone have um, similar but slightly different quality restlessness? The ants in your pants, kind of. Why is there all this stillness? I want to. Right? Anyone have um, aversion? Aversion where something that's here, we don't want it to be here. <laughs> yeah. It's painful. I don't know why I'm laughing. It's really painful, isn't it? It's this, these really are the diseases of the mind. <coughs> I think the laughter is because once we start to settle, we can see it. This is it. This is what the mind throws up. Anyone have desire for something that wasn't here? <laughs> pretty normal, isn't it? You know, the the fantasy, the cream cake, the whatever it was. Anyone have um, this, uh, this one? (laughs) Anyone have that one? Yeah, very, very normal on the first day, very normal. The torpor, just that, oh gosh, they talk about being awake, but Oh, this looks much more attractive. Really, so attractive, isn't it, sometimes to check out? <laughs> sometimes we're tired. Sometimes we need to, well, often we need to. Hopefully every night we get some. Not everybody has that privilege. All right, those of you who struggle with sleep. So sometimes we are tired and we genuinely need rest. Other times, as somebody said today, we stop. It's not that I'm tired, I'm not sick. Oh, there's one. (laughs) There's one, right? And my attention topples forward. I just fall into that. And what a blessed relief it is sometimes when we can fall asleep. And how difficult it is, any of you who know what it's like to not be able to. Any of you who've ever suffered that. It has a kind of parallel, um, uh, um, it's almost like a facsimile of our call to release. In a meditation center a little bit like this one I used to work at, the staff used to call going to sleep at night, they say, they used to call it the poor man's nibbana. Remember, nibbana is the the word for complete release and freedom that the Buddha is speaking about. But our nearest best thing is checking out. Another hindrance uh, to presence can be doubt. Sometimes if we have the other ones going on, like the restlessness or the agitation or the desire or the aversion, and we haven't quite seen it, we just feel assailed assailed and then the mind goes, oh my God, I can't do this. God, I doubt I'm ever going to be able to do this. Maybe the Buddha can do it. Maybe all the other 53 people in this room can do it, but not me. So we either doubt ourselves, or we doubt the teachings or we doubt Brad and myself. But there's a kind of... um, um, It's painful. It's not the kind of healthy doubt. There's a kind of healthy doubt that has us ask questions and look into things and not be just convinced because someone says something. That's different. That's healthy. But there's a kind of doubt where we shrink, where we kind of harden and buckle up against reality. Check it out. If that happens for you in the practice, Firstly, name it, oh, this is doubt, okay? And you might notice one of the other hindrances nearby. There might be some aversion to some discomfort in your body. There might be a longing in your heart for some relief, some, and it has a, you have a fantasy perhaps of, I don't know, Caribbean holiday or a, you know, somewhere where it's going to be better can be really mundane sometimes. I saw in my mind, I was, I had moved into a house that had a plastic floor and we had 
had saved enough to get a wooden floor and change it some years ago. And I sometimes see in my meditation, it's going to be so good when we get a wooden floor. You know, all of that desire can get really sort of channeled into something. Yeah, the wooden floor fantasy wasn't even terribly glamorous, you know. <coughs> One friend told me she, I don't know if I should advertise this, but she, uh, she was a dressmaker and she would sometimes be in the meditation with purple fabric, green fabric, you know, this is where her desire was going. So check out if the doubt is there. Sometimes the aversion, the desire, the restlessness might be there, and we haven't quite seen it yet. And then it can also be useful to um, take a few moments out and ask ourselves, what is it my heart really desires? What is it I really want this lifetime? What is it my heart seeks for in the midst of this, this extraordinary, marvelous, and sometimes really difficult world? So how's it going with the mindfulness of body? So the Buddha in his awakening to the truth of dis-ease and clinging, at a certain point he he laid out for some of his friends who wanted to listen um, these foundations of mindfulness. And he said, yeah, this is a really This is a really good way of realizing what I've realized. Set up first mindfulness of body, bearing the body in mind. Present as you take a step on the earth, as your weight relinquishes back into the earth. Right here as you raise your arms in the gesture Knowing this experience directly, how does that go today? How'd it go? Easy, difficult, painful, pleasurable. One thing I wanted to say, just have a swig. Sometimes in the beginning of my practice, and for a very long time actually, uh, the instruction would, I would hear the instruction from the teachers, either in meditative practice or in Tai Chi practice or some body oriented practice of, you know, sense into your body, feel where you feel this in your body. And I didn't. I couldn't. And I, as I endeavoured to drop into my body, sounds so nice, doesn't it? As I endeavoured to drop into my body, I didn't find presence there. I found all kinds of frustration and contention and don't tell me to drop into my body. All this aversion. And so for some, I lay that out for some of us it, it takes a while. It takes a while to make the journey from having some of us, well, all of us to some degree, I would say, but some of us, we've kind of pulled out of our bodies for various reasons, come into our heads. Head is fine, right? But if we're only living up here, life is a little limited, to say the least. And as we are invited to relax and drop back down into body, we don't necessarily feel trust in that, that it's a good idea, that we'd rather live upstairs, 
Or we might long to live in our body, as and through and with the body. But it feels impossible. And then we get frustrated and then the doubt might come. And, right. and then we don't like Brad because he told us to do it. Right? Because it's hard to bear. When something is hard to bear, usually then we'll find some, something to say about that in our mind. If that happens for any of you tomorrow, if any of you know what I'm speaking about to different degrees, then just acknowledge that, oh, this is hard to bear right now. It's not that I'm doing it wrong. It takes a while. It takes a while to re-inhabit these limbs. Right? It hasn't always felt like a safe place to be. And that actually, I think, can be universal. There's something about a human being, whatever our history has been, it's sensitive being one of these things, right? Having this body, it's easily impacted. It's easily impinged upon. Someone treads on our foot and it hurts, you know? And it is subject to sickness, aging, and, <coughs> and death. That's not always an exciting prospect for us, <coughs> right? So some of us come to spiritual practice hoping that we'll find freedom in spite of having a body. And we want to transcend, and indeed the path is transcendent. But it is transcendent and imminent through the body the more we can do that work of coming down and in and through and presencing through this living corpse, this animated clay. This, it's through this that the Buddha understood a transcendence, to be liberated within the world, to be free through body, not limited to body, but not denying body. So he said, keep practicing mindfulness of body. See where it takes you. And I want to give you some of the benefits he talked about. He said, bhikkhus, that's you, for, t for these purposes. When mindfulness of body has been repeatedly practiced, developed, cultivated, used as a vehicle, used as a basis, established, consolidated, and undertaken. He's rather thorough. It's, I, it, these, it sounds funny in English because it comes from an oral tradition. So it wasn't written down at the time of the Buddha. So in oral traditions, things are repeated and very, very precise. It's quite lovely, actually. Uh, he says, these ten benefits may be expected. What ten? So these are the benefits. One, you, one becomes a conqueror of discontent and delight. Discontent and delight do not conquer you and one abides overcoming discontent and delight. What does that mean? Overcoming discontent, overcoming delight. I don't want to overcome delight. Most of us would like more delight. Not being enamored by discontent, by delight, one can be free. That when the delightful is here, one can enjoy it. And when it passes, one can let it go. When discontent arises ex internally or externally, it is seen clearly. It does not define one. And one is not shrunken or limited by discontent. Another benefit. One becomes a conqueror. This is usually a bit more popular. One becomes a conqueror of fear, fear and dread. And fear and dread do not conquer oneself. One abides overcoming fear and dread whenever they arise. <coughs> Sound appealing? Sometimes the fear and dread can arise precisely because there is a body, right? It can get hurt and we're trying to protect it. And, right? But something about this foundation of mindfulness, we can get a little, le more, we can get a little less afraid of being a sensitive human. How come? Check it out in your experience. 
tomorrow, today, pain arises in the body, right? It will at times. Sore knee, sore shoulder, itchy nose, something mundane like that. There's the sensation, could be burning or pulsing or throbbing or piercing or hot or tight. And there is what the mind does with it, which is usually, oh my God, oh my God, oh no, not this. The fear gloms right on to this experience as we settle, as we breathe out, as the presence deepens, which it will, we can uncouple the mind's reaction from the bare experience of body. And that fear of pain is not the same as the pain. The fear of what will become of me if this continues is not the same as the pain. The pain is organic life expressing itself here and now. What our mind does with it is not scripted, is not determined. The gap between experience and reaction opens and there's a lot of room. We take our hands off the pain, include it, Breathe with it, widen the attention, see what happens. And in this way, practicing in this really simple way, we cultivate many, many things. We cultivate patience. We cultivate balance of mind, equanimity. Equanimity is where we're not just pulled around and pushed around by experience, solid, like a mountain, right? There could be flowers growing on your mountain or snow avalanche on your mountain, but the mountain remains solid, present here. And many other benefits the Buddha speaks about. Uh, Here's another one. One endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words. Have you ever had any of those come your way? (laughs) One endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words. Now, endures doesn't mean just takes it. There might be a response. (coughs) But one is not catching those words and either throwing them back like a bomb or crushed and pierced by them. Why not? Because in cultivating mindfulness of body, we support this sensitive heart-mind such that what arises in it, and we'll get more here tomorrow, what arises, all our feelings and our moods, and they did that to me and he shouldn't have done that, that can start to relax and unfold and reveal more gold. With mindfulness of body as a basis, the chitta, the heart-mind, the sensitive, resonant, impactable, impressionable, that which perceives an atmosphere when it walks into a room, that which can be very expanded and loving, that which can be tight and shriveled up and mean, that which can be pure spaciousness, that which can be radiant, that which can be hateful, can be many, many, many things. Mindfulness of body lets that whole sensitive experience be held, can start to relax, and it can start to unfold the image in the tradition like a lotus. It's been kind of covered up like the golden Buddha and the petals can start to open. So 
I think I want to finish. Maybe I'll keep those bits for tomorrow. I'll finish with this poem. It's called Buddha in Glory. And Buddha isn't just this North Indian man. Buddha is, means awake. Buddha means awake. Buddha in Glory, and it's by Rilke, Rilke, the German poet. Center of all centers, core of all cores, almond, self-enclosed and growing sweet. All this universe to the furthest stars and beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space and there the rich, thick fluids rise and flow, illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. Center of all centers, core of cores, almond, self-enclosed and growing sweet. All this universe to the furthest stars and beyond them is your flesh, your fruit, now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space. And there the rich, thick fluids rise and flow, illuminated in your infinite peace. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.